Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, an archive of Robert Lewis's sermons while at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you are encouraged and deepen in your love of Christ while enjoying this podcast. Here is this week's message. Chess is a fun game. It's a game that I learned when uh, I was growing up as a young man, uh, playing it in those lazy days of summers. Uh, it's a fascinating game for those of you who've played it. Game of strategy, of forward thinking, of complex patterns that uh, have to be played out with all these different pieces. And when somebody makes a move, then suddenly all the patterns change and you have to stay with that. It can also be a very humbling game, especially when you're on the other end, which uh, there were times that I had that kind of awful feeling that comes when you feel like you've been concocted out of the brilliance of your own mind, this wonderful scheme, this, this wonderful plan that, that really begins to approach genius level. And then you make your move and you watch all your genius swallowed up by even a greater plan with greater brilliance that made your plan look infantile and really quite foolish. When I would play those games, oftentimes when uh, I was playing an opponent and they made their first move and took a piece of mine, I would go, ah, that was just luck or that was an accident. But as I began to watch the different pieces on my side of the chessboard disappear, you know, it's kind of like life. When that starts happening, you have to go into a kind of denial about what's taking place. And then over time, when it begins to go even further and you get down to those few pieces, then you're wondering if maybe you can just throw something out there and you can get lucky rather than them get lucky. And then that awful word, checkmate, and you know all is lost. It's hopeless. Though it's humiliating, thankfully, chess is just a game. But this morning, what I would like to talk about is a kind of checkmate that occurs in life. It's not something you can get up and walk away from. It's something that stays with you, and you have to deal with it. It's a, a certain hopelessness that can come when you've not lost your queen, as in chess, but you've lost your wife as in life. It's, it's a place where uh, you're not just losing uh, your different pieces on a board, but you begin to lose your emotional energies, maybe even your self-respect, your own integrity because of some brilliant moves that you had in mind, but they got swallowed up in a much greater scheme called life, and it didn't look brilliant at all. When every move that you make shrinks your kingdom rather than expands your kingdom. And when your strategies finally end at that canyon of a dead end, that's called checkmate. What do you do when life shouts checkmate to you? Everyone gets to that place at some point in time in their life. Checkmate in chess is hopeless. I've got good news here this morning. Checkmate in life is not. And that's what we want to look at in Luke chapter 15, a wonderful chapter that uh, some of you, if, even if you've never been in church before, you've heard this story. It's a very famous story. In fact, G. Campbell Morgan, the great expositor, says this about Luke chapter 15. He says this, I suppose if I were selecting the greatest chapters of the Bible, it is certain that we should choose this chapter, Luke chapter 15. Among all things that our Lord ever said, none is more wonderful in its light, its color, or its glory than these words before us. 
what's before us really are some stories. They form a parable, but it's a wonderful story that's rich in theology. Its roots are deep. It really encompasses the whole Bible in its stories towards us. And that's what we want to look at this morning. Look at verses 1 and 2 with me. Now all the tax gatherers and the sinners were coming and listening to Jesus. And both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble at this, saying, This man receives sinners, and he eats with them. And all of a sudden, right at the very beginning, you feel a very obvious tension, don't you? There's a great crowd gathering. And on the one hand, part of that crowd that's swarming around Jesus, uh, they don't seem to, well, they don't seem to really fit with him. They're tax gatherers, uh, greedy people. They're sinners of all sorts. Now, it doesn't enumerate the sins, but quite frankly, it's an all-encompassing term. You cannot think of a sin that probably wasn't represented in standing around Jesus Christ in that moment. Uh, there was a lot of excitement there, but there was a dark shadow on that crowd. It was the crowd kind of standing a little to the left, the Pharisees and the scribes. They weren't really happy about what they were seeing. They, they were actually, as it says, grumbling about it. I bet if you could have listened in on what they were saying, they were probably mocking Jesus for being with such people. Uh, it was a scandal to be around those kind of people. They were probably critiquing him and criticizing him for what he was doing here. Certainly it's fair to ask, why were these people drawn to Jesus Christ? I mean, this is a religious guy. He's clergy. Why would you want to hang around him? Especially if you come from the backgrounds that they did, so unrighteous to be around one so righteous. The question becomes even more powerful when you look back at what Bill preached last week in Luke chapter 14. I mean, this is coming on the heels of one of Jesus' most sternest messages to the crowds around Him. He said some really hard things, some hard words to anybody who would want to join His team. Let me just give you a sampling of it. Luke 14, He says, If anyone comes to Me and does not hate his own father and his mother, yes, even his own life, can't be My disciple. Or how about this one? Whoever does not carry his own cross. Oh man, that is so bloody, gory. That's a horror story. But if you don't carry your own cross, you are not worthy to be my disciple. Or how about the last words that he mentions as he closes that chapter? He says, no one of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his possessions. Do you think a tax gatherer would be just a little bit intimidated by that? with all the greed that made up his life. <laughs> and yet, these were the people being drawn to Jesus. Despite all those harsh words, that, that, that kind of truth, there they were coming to him. So what's the draw? It's a good question, isn't it? So why would you want to be drawn out to a person like that? I think it really can be summarized in one word. It would be worth spending some time analyzing it, but I'm going to give you the shortened form. I think the one word that Jesus radiated, whether He ever said the word or not, He radiated grace. That's what was the draw to Jesus Christ. Not the truth that He spoke, the grace that He radiated. You know, John in his Gospel of John, when he talks about Jesus uh, being incarnate in this world, in the human form, it said that He, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us full of, do you remember the little equation there, full of grace and truth. There was that 
perfect mixture in Jesus Christ of grace and truth. And to be around Jesus because of that, not just to listen to Him. If you read it on a page, it might not uh, radiate the same feeling as these people got by being around Him. But to be around Him, one felt hopeful. That's what they felt. It was hard things He was saying. It's going to be some hard things I'm going to say today. But it was hopeful. It offered a better life, not the life they had. A fresh start, not the rut they were in. A new beginning, healing, help, forgiveness. It was, it was some hard things, he said, but all in all, it was hopeful. It was gracious. And as such, it was easy for those people to say, you know, that's worth taking another look at. I don't necessarily like everything he says, but there's just something about the way he presents it that's interesting. That's the very reason they didn't go to the Pharisees, by the way. See, when you were around a Pharisee, you were around truth. But when you were around a Pharisee, you were around full of truth and condemnation. Truth and arrogance. Truth and superiority. Truth and pride. And you know, there are a lot of people who carry the truth, but no one wants to be around them, do they? Because when they're around them, there's a certain sense that they're being repelled. There's no hope. There's, there's only a sense of judgment, of condemnation, of inferiority. That's why they didn't hang around the Pharisees. But Jesus said even things harder than the Pharisees, yet people were drawn to Him because they found hope for their lives. I want you to know that doesn't mean that Jesus was soft on sin. He wasn't soft on sin. He inspired people. He gave them hope. He offered them compassion and care. But no sinner who stood around Jesus for very long and who was eventually tempted to join up ever felt like he could join up and stay in his sin. I want you to know that. Compassion, yes. Compromise, no. Jesus received sinners and tax gatherers and people of all kind, but to stay with Jesus meant that something radically had to change. And sometimes that felt like a mixed message. Sometimes it feels like a mixed message from people who come to church here. Our church is open to anyone. I don't care what your background is. I don't care how much sin you carry along with you. You're welcomed here. That's one message that we want to give and continue to give. But to join here, you get another message. And if you don't make that switch when you join, sometimes you can feel like we've double-crossed you. Am I making myself clear here? See, sometimes you can come in and say, okay, here I am and I've got all this and I love being in this audience and man, the love here and you, you feel hopeful and you've got issues that you feel like can be handled and then you come and you say, I'm going to join here. So you join, not realizing that in the joining, something changed. And so in that process, as you begin to grow your life here, maybe you come to a place where you don't want to grow anymore. In fact, you don't want to address any of those issues anymore. In fact, you'd like to stay where you are but keep coming. And then one day somebody comes and confronts you on it. And you go, wait a minute, I thought sinners were welcomed here. Sinners, yes. Pharisees, no. See, that's the issue. There comes a place where when you become part of the group, then you're expected to follow Christ together. To never give up. To always be pressing forward regardless of the circumstances. But to stop in that and keep attending, well, that's hypocrisy. You might ask the question, when Jesus received all these people, 
He issued, if you want to be my disciple, you must do, remember those things? Hate your own life. Take up your cross and follow me. Deny yourself. Give it all up. Comes a place to do that. But if that stops, let me ask you the question. Would Jesus permit that to continue in His band? In His circle? In His spiritual community? Would Jesus turn and look the other way? Certainly His grace woos sinners. But does His grace endorse hypocrisy? <laughs> no. See, it's a fine line here. And uh, it's a fine line for the spiritual community called the church. It was a fine line for Jesus. And sometimes people missed the messages because they really applied to two different groups. Nevertheless, for the world, Jesus was full of grace and truth. And the church is full of grace and truth as well. But no one blended it better than the person of Jesus Christ. And that's why sinners checkmated in life by their own foolish choices. They poured out to Him. They love to be around Him, hoping that somehow He could show them what is impossible in chess. Because in chess, when you're checkmated, you're finished. But that He could show them the miraculous in life, that when they're checkmated by their own choices, there's still one move left. He offered it in Himself. So in verse 3, as He hears this tension, He decides to offer a parable. He says, and He told them this parable, saying... And then what you'll see, starting in verse 4, is one story. Then it transforms in verse 8 to another story. And then in verse 11 to another story. But here's what's important for everyone to hear at the beginning. All these three stories that are about to unfold are three parts of the parable that Jesus is about to finish or speak. They all go together. If you take one out or the other, the parable collapses. So you have to have all three stories to get the point that Jesus is about to make. Now, I laugh in saying that because if you took just the first two stories, you could become a real good Calvinist. See, because the Calvinist sees in these two stories God seeking the sinner and seeking the sinner till He finds him and they go, there's election. But then you get the third story, which is a th story of the prodigal son, where you get the son suddenly coming to his own senses and reaching out to God and the Arminians say, see, there it is, free will. Not just God's sovereignty, but free will. It's both there. And here's what I want you to know. Both of them, both stories are in the one parable. And theologians scratch their head and say, as they've said for centuries, how can you square this? And the answer is, you can't square a circle. That's the answer. Sovereignty and free will are the circle of theology. And we'll never be able to square it. It does depend on God, and it also depends on me. And that's what we're going to see here today as we address this issue of what to do when life shouts checkmate at your life. First, we're going to look at it from a heavenly perspective in the story of the sheep and then the coin. Look at verses 4 through 7. It says, as Jesus told this parable, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep, and he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture, and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders and he rejoices. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. Now I asked the first congregation and got no hands raised, but has anyone ever lost a sheep here in the audience? I just want to see if you can culturally identify with this. Okay, we drew another blank. Well, how about, have you ever lost a dog? Anybody lost a dog here? 
Ah, okay, well, let's, let's change this to a dog story. What do you think? I think that would work. <clears throat> you know, have you ever been driving out of your neighborhood and there on a telephone pole is this cardboard sign? And, and you can kind of tell it's been scrawled out by young hands and it says, puppy lost, black and tan, answers to the name Fluffy, call, and there's a number there. And you read that and you realize in that moment that somewhere in this neighborhood, in one of these houses, there's a little boy or a little girl whose heart is broken in it because they've lost something. And, and not only have they lost it, but they're, they're kind of imagining what this poor little innocent creature is like out there, lost without their love. See, from the perspective of heaven, and the only way we know about heaven is by the revelation that we have, this is a beautiful picture of God's feeling about us and our helplessness. See, His heart breaks too when we wander away, when we think we can outsmart this world, when we think we've got a scheme that'll really work. It's brilliant. It's genius. I mean, it's going to put us on the high road, and then it just starts collapsing all around us, and more and more our kingdom vanishes. Do you know that that breaks the heart of God. That's what this passage is telling us. When He sees us wandering away, here's another aspect of God. Notice, the shepherd doesn't curse the sheep that's wandered away. When you wander away, do you ever wonder what God's thinking, especially when you finally got trapped? You think He's up there going, See? See, I told you. Now sweat it out. Do you think He says that? See, our passage says, not only does he not sit there and wait for you to collapse, our passage says, like a shepherd, he puts away the 99 and he comes looking for you. What that tells us is that every moment of our life, we have a God who's out looking to enrich the fellowship with you, to know you. Now, you may not have any need to do that, but that's not the point looking at it from a heavenly perspective. The heavenly perspective just simply tells us that God is out there moving, searching, trying to find you wherever you are, at whatever place you might find yourself. Sometimes He's heartbroken over where He sees you. In 1985, when we first moved into our new house, along with that, we bought a little puppy that was six weeks old, named her Cassie. And uh, the kids, you know, they were going to take care of her and all, you know how that goes, and they were out probably three days later, some joggers came by and this little puppy, not sure of who its family really was yet, followed these joggers down the hill and then out on the Henson Road out here. Nightfall came and by that time, our kids were frantic. They didn't know where Cassie was. And uh, so we began, and, and what I want you to hear in this is that this is how I see God acting. We began to imagine what it was like for that little dog. Uh, there happened to be a thunderstorm that night. And my kids and I could just envision that little puppy huddled up in some culvert somewhere, shivering, wet, cold, helpless. And that moved us to begin to go to every door in the neighborhood saying, have you seen this black little dog about this size and that kind of thing? The answer is to the name of Cassie. And when that didn't work, we went and wrote out a little sheet of a description and a number and mimeographed it and put it in all the neighborhoods surrounding our neighborhood. And that didn't work. That's three weeks and no sign of Cassie. And you got visions of her walking out on a highway, you know, and some motorist coming down with no thought about animals. 
or you've got this big dog who finally confronts that little bitty puppy. Breaks your heart, doesn't it? Well, a month passed and we had put an ad in the newspaper and nobody answered it. And my wife went to renew it a month later and I gave up. I said, hey, it's been a month. It's a six-week-old puppy. There's no hope. But she wanted to stay with it, just like God stays with it. So she put the ad in again. Seven weeks into it, we get a call. Out Highway 10, miles away. They think they've got a dog like ours. Now, they just told us to come look at it and told us where it was. So we came driving up to the address, and guess where the address was? It was the Happy Days Dog Grooming Kennel. And somehow, this little pup had wandered all the way out there, miles away, and gotten around this dog kennel. And they had taken her in, and I mean, she was groomed. She had bows in her hair. She didn't want to come back, but we took her anyway. But, but the point is, is all that frantic searching and the day we brought her home, my kids threw a party. They were so excited. They were just rejoicing. They couldn't believe that Cassie had been delivered. Do you know heaven breaks out that way? When one sinner is delivered. Look at verse 7. It says, I tell you, and this is Jesus speaking, and He's telling us behind the veil of heaven what it's really like. He says, I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over the sinner who repents, the one, than 99 righteous people who need no repentance. There's a party when God sees His children wanting to come back home. He values them. He seeks them because of their helplessness. The, the next story is that of the lost coin. God is not only seeking us because of our helplessness. That doesn't just move God to seek us out. But He's also moved because we are that valuable to Him. We may not feel that. You may be here this morning thinking you are absolutely worthless. But that's not the divine perspective. And the lost coin tells us. Look at verse 8. Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and her neighbors saying, Rejoice with me for I have found the coin which I have lost." Now this, by the way, is no ordinary coin. Most probably this coin was a coin, especially when they mentioned the ten coins, was coins that made up a, a traditional headband that women wore in the first century to symbolize their marriage. So in a sense, this ten-coined headband is, is the equivalent of, ladies, your wedding ring. And uh, so when she lost this coin, it wasn't just any coin. It was a very special coin to her. And losing that coin carried the same impact it would carry with you if you looked down at one of your diamonds and saw only a hole. It transcends money, doesn't it, ladies? It, it, it symbolizes a love relationship that you've lost, in a sense. It, it goes deep. And that's what this lady experienced. She lost something that was incredibly value valued by her because it represented the love relationship she had with her husband. I want you to know that's exactly what this is symbolic of God in us. It's this relational value that causes God to frantically and carefully keep moving after you when you want absolutely nothing to do with Him. Nothing. You could care less. Leave me alone. I've got it figured out. All I have to do is move this night over here I'll win. Leave me alone. But he's still there, moving, looking, searching. 
That's the God who is revealed in the Scripture here. You know, sometimes when He sweeps and searches, He can do a lot of things. His arsenal is fairly potent. He can, in His sweeping, sweep you out of a job and into a corner. He's got that kind of power. On the other hand, He can sweep you into a job and away from a catastrophe. His arsenal is pretty broad. But in making those movements, those sweeps in your life, the goal is not to punish you or hurt you or destroy you. It's to bring you into an awareness of how much He values a relationship with you. I had the uh, privilege of sitting with a man for two hours this week. He told me an incredible story of being raised in a very strong Christian home. But now here it was 30 years later and three marriages. And he was finally for the first time discovering that God really did love him. And what his mom and dad said to him years ago wasn't a fantasy, but it was a reality. He had made so many mistakes. He had thought the first marriage was just bad luck. The second marriage, he went into denial. The third marriage, he was just hoping he would be lucky. But now, he was at checkmate. And yet, even in that desperate situation, God kept extending His hand and searching for Him. And He had found God. And He had found deliverance from life's checkmate. You know, these two snapshots from a heavenly perspective, perspective tell us four very powerful things. They tell us, first of all, that we are of great value to God. They tell us, secondly, that our value moves Him to seek us out even when we don't want Him around. It tells us, thirdly, that this divine initiative is like an outstretched hand that you can write grace over. And that's what I want you to picture in your mind. No matter where you are, there is a hand extended to you and it's got grace not works, not your own righteousness, not your own schemes, not anything. Not all the, any of the things you would offer up to God. It's just pure grace because of a God who loves and values you. This hand is extended continuously. But as we'll see now in the next story, now listen carefully, this hand of grace must be coupled with the sinner's hand of repentance if God's search is to be completed and joy is to then ensue. It's not one or the other. It's both and, and that's what this parable is telling us. God wants to reach out to us, but unless we reach out and take a firm grip called repentance, we'll never experience that deliverance. If you'll notice here in our two stories, the stories are not joyous because God is searching. It doesn't say that joy broke out because God was out seeking. If you'll notice, look at verse 7, look at verse 10. The joy ensues when one sinner, it says, repents, grabbed hold of that grace and got pulled up from the jaws of defeat and felt a miracle. It's a both and proposition. And it's from this earthly perspective of our responsibility towards God that then this third story unfolds and is developed. Let me read it for you. It's a wonderful, famous story, starting in verse 11. And Jesus said, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. And the father divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, 
a severe famine occurred in that country and he began to be in need. And he went and attached himself to one of the citizens of that country and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he was longing to fill his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I am dying here of hunger. I will get up and I will go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. And he got up and he came to his father. But when he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. And they began to be merry. What an incredible theology. The story of the prodigal son. Prodigal means wasteful. Now, you know, you could make hundreds of observations of this passage. I'm going to focus on one phrase. It's verse 17. It's the phrase, when he came to his senses. When he came to his senses. The phrase itself quite literally suggests that this young man hadn't been himself, doesn't it? Isn't that what it says? He came to his senses like he hadn't been himself, like he'd been out of his mind. He wasn't in his true self. And I want you to know that's exactly the case because there is an insanity attached to sin, isn't there? When you suddenly wake up and you say, and how many times have you heard this in me? I can't believe I did that. Have you ever looked at yourself, where you are with what you're doing, and as you look at yourself, you say, this can't be me. I can't believe that I would, would get to this place and do this kind of thing. Me. I've always thought so much higher of me. Can you imagine a rich Jewish kid looking there, holding two corn cobs in his hands, feeding pigs, and saying, how did I get here? You know, there are businessmen who hold a pencil after they've defrauded the company. And in the quiet of their office, they say, I can't believe I got here. There's a woman who wakes up and looks at the guy, the next guy she slept with, and she said, I never thought I'd be at this place. But here I am. See, there's an insanity about sin. You quite literally lose your mind. It says this guy came to his senses, came to a place where suddenly things look different. Maybe that was part of the grace of God. Let you think about that. But nevertheless, there he is. And something wonderful is starting to take place. And what you see when you stand on the mountain of verse 17 and look back to the beginning of the story and look forward to the end of the story is a full-orbed picture of the doctrine that theologians call repentance. That's what you see. I would like to describe it in a story rather than theologians describe it in the classroom. Oftentimes they'll talk about how repentance means literally in Greek to change one's mind. It's turning to a different way, a different way of thinking, and it's partly of God and partly of man. All that stuff is true, but I want you to know it's also pretty clinical. What does that mean to me? 
and an everyday experience as life proceeds in real time with real events. And God has graciously given us one of those stories that we can take a look at and see this full orb picture of how repentance takes place in a real life so that you can consider how it could take place in your life. And that's why this is so valuable. I'd like to make six very quick observations if I could. You might even jot these down if you feel the need to. But I want to mention them to you because I think you can get the feel of what's going on here. The first is this. The need for repentance begins with a wrong decision. That's where the whole start of the doctrine begins, with a wrong decision. Here's this young man, and he says, Dad, I want my wealth. Now, was that a wrong decision, a wrong strategy? Well, not necessarily, but we know when we read the whole story that behind that is a young man, just like I did when I was a young man, just like some of you ladies did when you were young ladies. You thought, you know, my parents, they hadn't got it figured out. But I got a strategy. Man, I've got it mapped out. I know where the knights are going to move and where the bishops are going to move. I know where to put my king and my pawns, and I can have it all. Remember? Remember some of you in your youth? Some of you can't remember anymore, but some of you can. <laughs> you remember when you did that? That was the wrong decision. When he thought he could shuck culture, when he thought he could shuck his heritage, when he thought he could outwit the generations of moral history and go out and do it on his own and beat the system. So he tried. But that's where repentance begins, right there. Secondly, the need for repentance grows as unpleasant and unanticipated circumstances begin to mount and the effort to manage those circumstances fail. Boy, that's so true in this passage. In verse 13, we read that he went off and he began to implement his strategy, but it didn't expand his kingdom. He didn't make winning moves. It says, if you'll notice there in verse 13, he squandered his estate. I don't think he squandered it all at once. I think it was a slow squandering. And I think because he was probably a smart young man raised by a smart dad, I'm sure that after he had some initial failures, he just redoubled his efforts and said, I've got to think differently, maybe more long range, more strategically. But at every move, his kingdom shrunk until he ran out of all his money. Now, I mention that because, you know, for some of us, we have to run out of everything before we'll finally listen. And one of the things I hate about wealth is wealth is a cheap substitute for repentance. It keeps people trying other alternatives rather than the healing doctrine of repentance. And so for you, if you're in that place, it's probably good maybe if you lost it all because of what you'll gain. That's what happened to this guy. God maneuvered him into a place where he lost it and by that got his attention. On top of that, if it won worse, notice a famine breaks out. I mean, what a lot of people do when they lose it all, let me tell you what their first move is. It's my first move. When you lose it all, instead of looking up, you look around, right? And you say, where is a friend who will loan me some money? Where is a friend who will counsel me through this divorce? You know, I kid the guys in men's fraternity. It's like we carry this huge umbilical cord, and when we get in trouble, we go looking for somebody to plug it into and then turn it on and get delivered. But see, God had blocked that move too because now there's a famine in the land and everybody's at a survival level. It says he went, notice, to one of his citizens. I bet it was a former friend that he used to party with. And he thought, well, this guy will deliver me. He'll take care of me. He'll rescue me. Maybe put me up in the guest bedroom. What did the guy do? 
put him out in the pigsty. He did to him what was their philosophy of friendship. He used him. So there he was. No one, it says, verse 16, was doing anything for him. And all the unanticipated and unpleasant circumstances kept mounting, and all his strategies kept failing. He couldn't manage them. Checkmate. That's where we find him when we come to verse 17. Which leads me to the third observation. The foundation for repentance, once complete, shatters denial by the ruthless awareness that a massive error in judgment has been made. I mean, finally, you have to face up to the fact that something's wrong here. In this guy's case, it was through circumstances. Uh, finally, the circumstances just overpowered the denial. Sometimes for you all and for me, maybe we still got the circumstances under control, but we left out one thing, and that was that a friend knows. And so the friend comes and exposes our denial by saying, you're doing the wrong thing. I had a guy tell me it just totally shook him up when his friend walked into his office and said, I know what you're doing. You think no one knows, but I know. Remember David, King David, had an affair with Bathsheba, killed Bathsheba's husband Uriah to cover it, thought he had it. A year went by, thought everything was okay until Nathan showed up one day, the prophet, and said, you're the man. You've sinned. All of a sudden, checkmate. Sometimes for us, it's not circumstances or exposure. Sometimes for us, it might even just be insight. You might be here today sitting out in the audience and you've not really thought about all what the pressure that you're feeling and everything, and as you listen, it's just going to dawn on you, you know, I'm missing it. Sometimes it just comes from insight, being next to something that's truthful and suddenly shatters the denial, and you realize, you know, I'm just not doing it right. It can come from different means, but in this case, this guy finally has his denial shattered by ruthless truth through circumstances. Which then leads to the fourth observation. Who is responsible for my condition? See, now we're at the crossroads of repentance. This is the most crucial point. When you've got that awareness, when you've come to your senses, you know what the next thing we think? Who's responsible? See, this young man could have said, when he came to his senses and looked around, he's saying, you know, my, I just don't have any good friends. There's nobody out there. Doggone it, if it isn't God's problem, if He hadn't sent this famine, I'd be okay. He could have said, you know, my dad, if he'd have just given me more of the estate, if he'd have just equipped me better when I was growing up, I wouldn't be in this situation. He should have given me some skills that would have worked here. You know what? We do the same thing. Our first thought is, who can I blame other than accept responsibility for my circumstances? You know, there's a book that's out right now by Charles Sykes. It expresses well where America is today. It says it all in the title. A Nation of Victims. Who can I blame? Who can I blame for this and that? Anything to, take, to, to avoid taking personal responsibility for the situation that I'm in. And I want you to know this. There'll never be repentance in your life, ever, without you accepting responsibility for everything that's in your life. Until we come back to that point, we will be a nation of victims that's going nowhere. That's what this guy did. He made the right turn. If you'll notice, starting in verse 18, look at how he accepts responsibility for his actions. 
He says, as he's beginning to ponder in this new sensation of awareness, he said, you know, I will get up and I'll go to my father and I'll say to him this, Father, here it is, I have sinned. I've done it. It's my fault. Everything that I'm, ex I'm, I'm experiencing right now comes back to my strategies and my choices and my responses. I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. Then he goes on to say, I'm going to go and say, I'm no longer worthy to even be called your son. Just make me one of the hired men. But in that strategy, that new strategy of awareness, he says some wonderful things about repentance now that he's gone from the crossroads to the high road of concluding repentance. That's observation five. Notice that repentance proceeds from resolutions. That's what he made there, by the way, in 18 and 19 resolutions. To open confession and then to acts of restoration. And by that, completed the cycle of repentance. Now I say that because there are a lot of people who will come to a place of their senses, own up to their sin, and then say, God, I'm sorry, and forget it. That's not good enough. That's what this story tells us. That's cheap repentance. Notice what this guy does. He says, I'm not worthy. I know that. I'm going to go do this with my dad. I'm going to confess to him, and I've got a plan of how to make it up to him. And then notice what he does. It says, verse 18, or it says, uh, excuse me, in verse 20, it says that he went and did it. That's the key part about repentance. He didn't just resolve it in his mind. He implemented it in his life. He got up. He trudged all the way back home. His father saw him, and the wonderful part of the story is to see a dad, which a dad would never do in an oriental society, running, ran to him and embraced him. But this minute his dad got there, he went through the plan of repentance. He said, Dad, I've sinned. I'm not worthy to be your son. And he was going to go on and say, just make me a hired man. I'll make it up to you. I'll resolve it. I want some acts that will restore at some level our relationship. His dad never lets him get to that point, though, because he hugs him. But the point is, is that true repentance follows this pattern. It comes to an awareness, then it goes to resolutions, then it goes to open confession, and then it goes to acts of restitution, and then it's complete. And once it's complete, then you got the last observation. Repentance ends with freedom and joy before God. That's where the celebration begins. But listen, somebody who goes through, and this is where we mount up the, the emotional casualties in our life. If you go through a divorce and walk away from that divorce and enter this church and hear that what you did was wrong and you go, God, I'm sorry that I divorced Sally. Amen. That's not good enough. Not for you, it's not good enough. If you divorce Sally, you know what you need to do? You need to go back to Sally. And you need to say, I wounded you. I sinned. I'm sorry. You need to say that. And then with whatever measures are possible, you need to act in such a way to restore any damage done that you can possibly do under your power. We got men who never pay child support, but they say they're sorry to God. Sorry is not good enough. Sorry is saying I'm sorry and then paying my child support. Acts of restitution. That's full orb repentance. You see, that's what we're talking about here. And what who, the person who loses and hurt the worst is the person who doesn't understand that not doing that is mounting emotional casualties in my psyche, in my lifestyle. It's moving me to act in a deformed, disjointed way, and I'm not even aware of it half the time. You know, in China, they used to bound the little girl's feet, keep them small. It would be painful, it would be hurtful, and actually would deform. Sin does the same thing. It binds your heart, and over time it squeezes it into these unnecessary 
unnatural states. And just simply saying, I'm sorry, does not cut those, that, those uh, cords. Acts of restitution do that. They bring fullness. One sinner who repents, repentance is both an awareness, an understanding and resolution, confession, sometimes so important to say to the person, I've sinned against you. And then whatever I can do to make it up, I will. That person creates a celebration that exceeds anything Barnhill Arena ever saw. I want you to know. Because that's a person who's coming and taking the wise step of walking into a whole new understanding of what it means to walk with God. Checkmate. You know, we have all kinds of movies that we watch where heroines get in a situation where it's impossible and then out of the blue comes some situation that delivers them. That's not a fairy tale. I've seen that happen in real life. But for that to happen, wherever you are, no matter how desperate you may feel or no matter what kind of pressurized situations you may have on you, I want you to know the first two stories tell us that the hand of grace is forever being offered to us. It's wonderful. God's heart is breaking. He loves you. You're valuable to Him. He wants to change that. But for you to seal the deal, you've got to turn and reach up and grab that hand in repentance. You can't do it by saying, I'm only going to do part of it. We've all seen those scenes where the weak person is down in the floodwaters and has offered the hand and they, they reach up and, and if I can use the analogy, they're willing to say, I'm sorry, but they're not willing to act in a way that brings restitution and their hands slip off and into the floodwaters they go. Takes it all. But if all is there, there is a rescue and a deliverance from an impossible situation. I'd like to take the last few moments by just having, if you would, you bow your heads. And I'm not asking you to bow your heads to pray. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes so you can get alone with yourself for just a moment. And I want to address two questions to two different groups of people here this morning. Here would be the first question, and it pertains to some of you who are here. Do you feel lost here today? Does this kind of stuff that we're talking about, you're going, this just doesn't make sense. I don't know God that way. Maybe the question I need to ask you is, do you know God? Do you have a personal relationship with God? If, if you and I were just alone and you felt real uh, secure to be transparent with me and I said to you, do you believe you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, with God? Would you say, oh yes, or would you kind of become uncomfortable? You know what the Bible calls that? Lost. And God is not up there saying, well, you should have known better. God is up there reaching out His hand of grace and He says, I want to find you. I really do because I love you and you're valuable to me. You know, for you to find Him, this doctrine of repentance applies. You must come to an awareness to your senses that you're not ever going to figure out this life without Him. You've got to come to a place where you're willing to say, I've probably gone the wrong way and openly confess that to Him, even to state to Him, I'm lost. But then to reach up and say, I want to do whatever it is to know You. And He'll take hold of that hand, that extended hand, 
and pull you up into a new world that maybe you know nothing about, but which is exciting and exhilarating for the ones who do. Hopeful, full of compassion, mercy, and grace. If you want to move from lost to found, all you have to do is say, Lord, I don't understand all this. I confess I'm lost, but I want to know you. You said that you have, have, have delivered me from my sin. I, I want to believe that. And, and I want to follow you. Help me. That starts the adventure. It's only the start, but it is a start. Then there are those of us who are here this morning who we know Jesus Christ. We know that we do but we feel under great pressure. The joy that the Christian life brought to us in the beginning, maybe it's not here this morning. Maybe it's because of a circumstance that you tried to maneuver your way into or out of and it's ended at a dead end. Maybe it has to do with relationships. Maybe you've got broken relationships around you and, and you're worn out. You've tried it all. You're a checkmate. You just need to admit it. Maybe it's things from your past Maybe it's with a habit you've been dealing with. And uh, if you'd get out of the Nile and realize you're never going to break that habit, why don't you just admit it? Are you running out of moves? The question I would ask you, are you willing to take responsibility and just admit that that's sin? Just say, I have sinned. That's what sin is. It's just losing my way, going my own independent way. Why don't you confess that? But then let's finish it. When you leave here, maybe somebody needs to hear you confess that. Your wife or your husband, a friend, family member, an employer, an employee, to deliver you. And then you go to them and say, I've sinned. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? And then offer them whatever you can do to make it up. If you want to be a healthy person, in line with what you were created to be, that's the winning move out of checkmate. Father, I pray that you would help each of us be wise in regard to our lives. Let us think on that and see that this is serious stuff, but it is, it's intended to end in a serious form of joy as well. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.